All right, thanks, Mark, and good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're uh, brand new today or newish to our church, uh, welcome to, uh, to you especially. Um, like Mark said, we are uh, uh, going to move into a time of preaching right now and what you normally do in our, in our services. And, and right now we are uh, in a series on um, the book of 2 Corinthians, which is one of the New Testament letters uh, to the church. It just started last week, actually. So if you're just joining us, you missed last week. Uh, last week's uh, sermon is on our website, and uh, you can access that through the app as well, our podcast, if you'd like to catch up. Um, so this will end up being about a six-month series, uh, roughly five and a half months or so, uh, through early March. Uh, it's a little longer book than in terms of uh, relative anyway to some of the shorter letters that, that we have in, in the New Testament, but it's a gem of a book. Uh, we're really looking forward to this. Lots of uh, wonderful, in one sense unique, in one sense not unique, because the whole Bible is about the same thing. It's about Jesus, but in one sense kind of a unique take on uh, church life and uh, as a Christian, church community, killing sin, a lot on suffering and comfort. We'll touch on that today. We'll start talking about that today. Um, what it means really just to be a Christian. And, and these are written to real churches like us too, so keep that in mind. These are grounded in history, uh, and because of that truthfulness, um, they are really written by, uh, by a Christian like us, a, a messed up guy who was saved by Jesus, who was kind of commissioned uh, by Jesus to plant churches and to write these letters inspired by the Holy Spirit. So um, as, you, as you listen then, because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit and the whole Bible is, um, we'll talk about context, but the more important question for us as Christians is to ask, how is God writing me a letter? Uh, how is he speaking to me uh, in, in this capacity? That, that is, they're both good questions. That's the greater question, though, is what does God want me to know about himself? What, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to live as, as a believer on a daily basis? What reminders do I need? Uh, and so what are the greater things, the lesser things when it comes to doctrine and so forth? We'll touch on those things and a whole slew of other things throughout this series, but that gives you a little bit of a taste uh, for, for where we're going and uh, where maybe um, you'll be going this week as you read this book yourself or other letters uh, in the New Testament forward, just into your life. Always be listening for the voice of God, uh, writing these letters and the blood of his son out to you saying, I love you, and, and this is... Um, this is uh, what I've spent to, to get you back to me. So, um, so with that said, let's dive in. We are going to be looking at um, the uh, verses uh, 3 to 11 in chapter 1 today. So please turn there in a Bible or phone app if you have it. This will be on screen though uh, as well. Let me read it in full to begin. Last week was the greeting. So we talked about how Paul just wished grace and peace upon this church. He addresses himself as the sender and the Corinthian church as the, the receivers of the letter, like he does all of his uh, letters. It was standard practice uh, of the day. But then he wishes grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about how, how that's the epitome of the gospel in a lot of ways. Grace from God and peace with God because of Jesus' spilt blood. We have that kind of robust hope because of what Jesus did and uh, how much and in what way God sent him uh, on mission to, to save us. So more on that today. But let's, let's read here. Uh, verse 3, we'll start. And we, uh, like I said, read the whole thing to start. We'll come back and, and dissect this a bit. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 
If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that, we, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Okay, so a couple things on this. I don't know what your guys' experience is in reading uh, letters like this in the, the New Testament, and a lot of you have probably read this, some of you haven't. Um, but these are, these are wonderful passages. Uh, in a lot of ways, Paul writes here in a way that's uh, somewhat unique. I'll talk about that in a second. But there are um, what I think, I was thinking this week about this in terms of like uh, complicating factors that uh, can kind of come up when you read a passage about comfort and suffering uh, juxtaposed because um, not everyone's suffering. And, and I mean that in Paul's day, certainly not all the Corinthians were suffering in the same way uh, as others. And that's true for our church, as for, for you in this room and me. Not all of us are suffering the same way right now, and that, that includes our past. We've just we've had different journeys and, and so forth that we all have suffered. Uh, but also, like on the flip side of that coin, not all are comforted. And so when it refers to God as the God of all comfort, and, and then as a Christian, if we're not comforted, how do we understand, how do we deal with that, with that tension? So that's a, a factor to this as, as well. Also, parts of the, these passages like this uh, are kind of contextual, and they seem very specific to Paul, because in one sense they are, so they, but, but that can mean they can feel hard to relate to as well. And on top of that, some of the ideas here are quite abstract, like what does it mean to share in someone else's suffering? You know, we don't talk in those terms much. Uh, maybe we should more, but we don't talk in those terms much. And so what, what does that mean to share in someone else's sufferings? Why is it worded that way? And then the, the last thing is, uh, factor is there seems to be some tensions as well, like uh, comfort, and suffering, both sounding like they're normative for Christian life. That's just the way this reads, right? Like Christians will have tons of comfort because God is the God of all comfort and he dispenses that freely uh, to people, uh, to his churches. And yet it seems very normative and actually good sometimes that Christians would experience the opposite of comfort, or so it seems, which is suffering. And so how do we deal with that? How, how do we understand how these things relate, go together, juxtapose, and, and so forth. So, um, so this is a hard passage. It's not easy. You can read, this is one of those passages you can read and say, I totally get it, then read it a second time and think, I don't get it at all. <laughs> like, I don't, know, I don't know what you just said there. It's a little bit abstract and kind of weirdly worded, um, but, uh, but that's kind of par for the course sometimes with these letters. So, uh, but God reveals things to us that we, we need to pray and, and ask the right questions. And I think when we do that, when we look at this from a nuanced, different angle perspective, which the, with the rest of Scripture in mind, and again, as though God himself is calling out to us through Paul's words here, uh, a lot gets clarified, I think. And so um, this won't be an exhaustive take in every word here in, in this passage, but we will cover um, three big angles or facets to the diamond, uh, I'll say, as we spin that in the light and just uh, look at it from 
related but, but different um, perspectives. All right? So the first perspective we'll look at, I have three today. The first is to look at just uh, the, uh, really the, the title sentence uh, of the passage is the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, and Paul says uh, the God of all comfort, that the main subject matter of this passage, clearly, right, when you read it, is it must be about God, that this, is, this letter is recognizing God as, as the source of comfort, the source of salvation, the source of mercy in the Corinthian church's life. And, and in our lives, as we read this, we, we can't miss that. So he starts, blessed be the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Almost sounds kind of psalm-like if you've read the psalms before. Um, it's uh, almost just a, a kind of a worshipful stanza or, or like, a, like poetry. Blessed be the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Kind of a unique thing here for Paul, actually, um, if you've read his letters before. Unique for Paul to essentially name God here. He's naming him. He's kind of qualifying or almost um, modifying the, the noun, the pronoun, is God. It's not just God, not blessed be God, but blessed be the Father of mercies and then uh, the God who is the source of, of all comfort, which is an amazing thing, isn't it? If you think about this, I mean, these are, and I want to overcomplicate this because you can read that and understand it. Like, we can understand the Father of mercies. He's, he's a merciful God. He's like a father to us and he's the God of all comfort. But at the same time, it's very intimate, isn't it? For God to be named this way, for Paul to name God this way, to remind us that this is his name. He's like a good father. He's full of mercy. He's full of comfort. Like, it seems kind of random, but he is like a wellspring. He's a source of all, of, of all comfort. And it helps me sometimes when I read the Bible, if this helps you, great. Um, but to, to think, what if we didn't have that, you know? Read, read this in the white space and think, what if it said the opposite of that? Or what if God didn't have those qualities? How less of good news that would be. How bad news it would be. Um, so as believers, as, as non-Christians as well, if you're here and not a Christian yet, this is um, also good news for you. But for those of you who know this, be, the, the Corinthian church knew this, and yet they didn't. They forgot. So we, we need the same types of, of reminders as well. This is who God is. I also think that the way he talks here um, in this, with this kind of language and, and um, description sounds Trinitarian. I mean, first because God the Father is mentioned and he's juxtaposed to God the Son right, right next to him, who is Jesus. But also because comfort, the idea of comfort, is close to the idea of love. We know in the Bible that God is called uh, love. He is love. He doesn't just have love. He actually is the, the essence of love, and, and comfort is, is close to that. So, in other words, he's not the God of all strife, of all, you know, workmanship in the sense that it's on us uh, to, uh, to journey towards him and find him, but he's the God of dispensed comfort. And, um, in fact, this, for me this week, this kind of reminded me of, of human marriage. Uh, it might sound a little bit um, strange to compare these, but just bear with me. Um, in marriage, how, you know, we, we don't marry, or we shouldn't marry someone. I'll just, say it, I'll just say it this way. We don't marry someone so that we might benefit on a professional or uh, self-actualizing level, right? Like if we talk that way, and sometimes people do, and my heart always breaks when I hear that because it's just so unromantic and not loving to uh, just to look at someone and say, yeah, I love them, but um, I just want something from them. Uh, just selfish. But, so, so we don't say, I want this person to be my spouse so that I will get stuff from 
you know, the, the contract, the marriage contract, so that they will support me as I pursue my own dreams, do we? Like, we, we don't say that, do we? Or at least good marriages don't say that. Like, we don't say, I, I want, they're going to support me as I, as I continue pursuing my own individualistic dreams and maybe have my own bank account along the way. So, you know, and, and all that stuff. Like, that's not, that's not oneness in marriage. But, but instead, we marry just because we love the person, uh, you know, uh, or for comfort's sake, you could say, uh, to use language from this passage. We marry for comfort's sake or love's sake. We, we actually lay things down for the sake of marriage. We lose things so that we can gain in love. That's marriage. And in the same way then with God, God does not save us for our sake alone. In other words, not for utilitarian purpose, purposes. Remember, He's a trinity. He already existed in perfect relationship with himself before anything was made. So we can't say that God made us to get something from us as though he was bored or lonely because he wasn't. So he doesn't make us like for our sake alone, which, which would be to say for utilitarian purpose or to self-actualize us, but instead for his sake, meaning for his glory and fame because he just simply loves us. He loves you guys. He wants to share himself with you. And so um, this language, being Trinitarian, being comfort-based, being mercy-based and love-based, um, all that's important. That, that's, uh, you know, you might read this and think, yeah, I've read that a thousand times, but don't skip over that. If it wasn't Trinitarian, it would be utilitarian. It would be, um, it works-based. It would be um, to get something from us rather than just to simply share with us. All right? Now, the, the, the tension, though, arises when reading a verse like this uh, the tension arises in times of discomfort, right? For our life, maybe even for years, if you've been suffering for a very long time or going through a year like 2020, which is wrought with suffering. And we ask bigger questions maybe like, okay, I hear that, but does God love me? Or doesn't he want to comfort me because I'm not comfortable? I wouldn't say my life is comfortable, is comfortable right now. All right, so maybe all of you actually are saying some version of that, or, or many of you. Or maybe the question is, why is God withholding from me? If he's the God of all comfort, if he's my God, if, if I'm his child, his son or daughter in the faith, um, why? I, I feel like he's withholding. And that's where we have to be careful here interpretationally, because instead of promising health or ease or peace in our lives at all times, we actually know from this passage, don't we, that it's normative for Christians to suffer. So we have to factor that in as well. More on that in, in just a minute. But instead of the idea of God being the God of all comfort, meaning that he's promising health or ease or peace in our lives at all times, this has to do with God's name. Meaning, this is, we should read this and say, this is what God is like to sinners because of Jesus. And understanding this dictates then where we go for salvation or mercies or which I think what he has in mind when he says mercies and salvation there is spiritual comfort. Even when he says uh, suffering, we'll get to this later, but suffering can lead you to rely on God who raises the dead. See, he has something deeper in mind here than just simply um, Christians uh, receiving physical comfort from God. Though that's not unchristian to say that. That's certainly true in a part of our experience as, as Christians. But that's, he, he clearly has something more in mind when he says mercies, salvation, which is deliverance from sin and comfort, spiritual comfort in, in that way. But, but again, 
Clearly, Paul's saying it all belongs to him. God is the one who's the God of comfort, all comfort. So whether physical or spiritual, the idea is it's not sourced from within us, right? Like in the Bible, human, human beings are never called people of comfort. We don't have this, people of all comfort. We don't have this name, and that's intentional. Uh, maybe it's obvious, but it's actually, don't skip that. Like we, we don't, it's not sourced from within us. Comfort, salvation, mercy, you know, as if the ultimate solace of salvation came from us, you know, it's, that's not, all comfort is given over to God. That word all is, is important. So this passage, that word all is huge. Uh, the word all, the clause, all comfort, the name God of all comfort and Father of mercies, what this is inviting us to, wherever you guys are at today, in your pain or your comfort, Christian or not, is run, don't walk, to the Father who gives mercies to sinners, whether you have comfort or discomfort right now in your life, because he is the spring of life. He's the fountain, he's the spring of life, he's uh, the source of, of all uh, salvific nourishment. All right? As we go on, though, we'll build on these themes. Uh, but So the second facet, though, is to flip the coin around again and look at the other side, which is uh, the point of suffering. This passage actually has a lot to say on that, uh, which is interesting. We all ask that question, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do I suffer? We may ask that in a special way as Christians because uh, suffering may seem like it has less of a place in our life after we are converted, after we um, are adopted into God's family. So um, there's a lot here. Now, Paul's point's not to give this you know, exhaustive topical discourse on what is suffering and why does it exist in the Christian life or anything like that? So just to be clear on that. But he does touch on a couple of reasons why it exists and even more, maybe you got this when I read it first, but if not, we'll talk about this, even more why God brings it into our life. That's the clear implication here uh, in the way that, that, Paul, that Paul writes. Why is that the case uh, uh, sometimes? Why is it important to understand it that way, that special kind of suffering as though it's a gift even all right so the first though is in verses four and six the first reason suffering exists especially in the christian life so in the church maybe he's writing to churches so this is we should think of what does christian ministry look like when we read this that's one take but the first is so that we may be able to comfort others in affliction especially from verse six if we are afflicted it's for your comfort and then up in verse four um, God comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So it's kind of a couple angles on this. Uh, you know, if we go through trial of any kind, then, then experience comfort from God. What this is saying is God will use that. He'll, he'll equip us to minister to and be an expression of that same divine comfort to, uh, to another person. So on one level, I think it's empathetic. So it, it's saying... You know, like, um, as an example, Aletha and I have been through a couple of miscarriages, so it, it would be to say, we've been through that very dark time of our lives twice. God met us in that. He comforted us. And the comfort he gave us, the sufficiency that he was for us in that moment, um, didn't take away all of our pain, but he was sufficient. He gave us, he gave us a, the comfort of God. And so others going through a miscarriage, our hearts break for them, and, and we can... Um, if that opportunity arises, we, could, we can pray. It, it, it shapes our prayers. It shapes 
how exactly we might approach those people and, and, and the comfort that we are able to give by God's grace is not our comfort, but it's the comfort that he first dispensed uh, to us. So on one level, it's, it's that. It's saying, hey, you've been through that too. I can empathize with you. But the way he writes, though, it's more than that because he says in verse 4 up there, he says, who are, we can comfort those, second line, who are in, keyword, any affliction. You see that? So though, he's just saying those who suffer in any way and experience the comfort of God in, in and through that can, can offer comfort and can be a conduit for God's comfort you know, towards someone who's suffering in any condition. So it's not just that, hey, I've been through that too. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. And so I think the greater idea actually is that suffering in general tends to give us compassion for others, doesn't it? You guys ever experienced this? Where if you suffer and then someone else is suffering, like if you really suffer and you go through something and God comforts you, maybe you come out of it, you're in a healthier place, like it's just, it's harder to look away from someone else's suffering without your heart breaking at least or without shedding a tear or without wanting to push your arm on that person's back and just say, there is a dawn to this night. God sees you. He loves you. Uh, he, he offers his comfort through his son. It's harder not to like at least want to do that. And I think that's true because it's the same with Jesus. It, this is not just about us, but with Jesus, it, it's, it's the same. But with him, we say his compassion was his suffering. It's not just this neat ordered thing, but rather the way he shows compassion is by suffering for us. More on that in a minute. But, but again, for us, God's comfort mixed with healing, mixed with compassion, is a, is a beautiful concoction uh, that God uses. And we just don't have the same weaponry and, and equipping to go about helping others if we don't first go through that same uh, kind of pre-resurrection type experience of uh, really having uh, dark, dark times. And so God, this is just saying God can redeem it. God can use it um, in, in, others, in others' lives his comfort. That's the first angle. The second is a little bit, it's related but a little bit different. This is from verse 9, but the second reason suffering exists is so that we might rely less on ourselves and on God who raises the dead. So the full verse says, indeed, Paul saying, we felt, just talking about something that happened to him, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but instead on God who raises the dead. Okay, there's so much here, um, but let, let me just start by saying uh, the, the implication uh, is clearly that God is the one who was bringing the suffering into Paul's life, right? Because a good thing came from it. And not just a random, vague good thing, but more reliance on him. So it must have been from God. Um, relying on God is good. Relying on God is a gospel thing. It's a mature thing to do. It's a salvific thing. Conversely, the devil does not want you to rely on God. Can't we affirm this? The devil does not want you to rely on God. That's his main mission. The devil's main MO is to get you to rely on yourself and what you do and your intelligence and your strength. That is what the devil wants. He wants to defame Jesus and defame God like he did 
with a third of the angels in the very beginning. And so he's, he's bringing in, he already has done this in a way, but he's brought in humanity to this same type of, you know, endeavor or rejection or rebellion or coup against the one right true king. And so we know that it can't be from the devil because the outcome is the exact opposite of what he's trying to do in the world. The devil wants you to rely on you. God wants you to rely on him, right? And suffering, many times, at least this kind of special suffering, gets us to the latter. So we can't just credit it to evil, personified evil or a dark angel or unfortunate circumstances, but actually uh, God, God himself. Sounds a lot, uh, doesn't it? Uh, like Ephesians 2.8. Paul, same author, different church, says, this salvation, the center of Christianity, is not of yourselves. Same language. Not of yourselves. It's not from you, but rather it's from God. It's a gift of him. So this is really important to see because there is a suffering, this kind of suffering can, can lead us to a gospel end, meaning that it, it can drive us all the more away from ourselves to reliance on God. That is what the Bible calls sanctification, the process of becoming set apart and just distinctly Christian. Less and less of ourselves, more and more of him. Less and less of reliance on what we do even the best of things, less and less reliance on that and more and more focus on, meditation on, and reliance on what he does for us with the works of his nail-pierced hands. That's maturity. That's maturing in the faith. And it's a lifelong thing. We never stop that. And not only is that just like, you know, descriptive of, of what happens when a Christian matures, it actually leads us to becoming more people of humility and kindness because we think less of ourselves and less about the rules and more about him. One commentator on this passage calls Paul in this way the true apostle of the New Testament. Paul is the apostle of the New Covenant, the New Testament, meaning this theme itself is the glory of the New Testament, and that is weakness in ourselves and strengthen God alone when it comes to salvation. Weakness in ourselves. Paul was weak. God was his strength. He boasted in his weakness, bragged about his weaknesses, and boasted in the strength of God. In that, he is the, he is the epitome of the New Testament. Not works. All grace. In his very, not just his words, his writings, his sermons, his preaching, but his very life just exuded that. It was the circumstances of his suffering that undergirded it. So he is the apostle of the new covenant. But think about, for a second, think about if the opposite was true in Paul's life. What if after Paul became a Christian, he became a superhero with a cape? What if he was healthy all the time? What if he was strong, untouchable, bulletproof, rich, with every gift imaginable, never to suffer? What would that communicate about the gospel? It would communicate that this whole Christianity thing is about God blessing the pre-existing strong. God rewarding us for being good. 
or for responding to him in some way positively. This is actually one of the true dangers to the prosperity gospel, by the way, if you know what that is. I'm not going to go there today, but that's, that's the true danger to the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. But if that was Paul's life, if that was, if that was our life as Christians, if we never suffered, if we never had weakness, go back to verse 9. Why would we need to rely on God then? I mean, as Christians. If that was our story, Paul's story, why would we need then to rely on God? The answer is we wouldn't. We would cease. The idea of reliance on God alone for salvation would stop at conversion and then our comfortable, suffering-free, strong life would be self-actualizing and it would make God small. Do you see? This is what this, this passage is saying. This is what Paul is saying. This is actually a massive theme throughout the whole book that we'll keep um, coming back to. But what I want us to see today is that reliance on God is a message for us when we're not Christians yet and after we become Christians every day of our life until we die. It doesn't change. It's saved by grace, not by works, as pre-Christians and as Christians. And our weakness and suffering are given as precious gifts to us by God so we don't forget it. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, I've learned to kiss the waves that cast me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the waves of suffering and see them as a gift that casts me more on Jesus because without it, I wouldn't be clinging to him as much. I'd be more self-reliant. You see? And in that moment, I wouldn't be living as much like a Christian. I'd be less mature. I'd be in more danger. Even though life would be more comfortable, I'd be in more danger. I just wouldn't see it. So I've learned to kiss the waves that cast me and, and splash me up against the rock of ages who is Christ himself. And again, one of the big contextual things going on in this letter that I do want to pause and say is, um, and you'll see this as we go on, some of you are aware of this, but the big contextual background piece to 2 Corinthians is that some Christians in Corinth and elsewhere were ashamed of Paul's suffering and weakness. So Paul is like their ex-pastor. He planted the church, he knew a lot of them personally, he's writing back now, but he's not there anymore. But they still hear about him. They hear about his sufferings, they hear about his imprisonments, they hear about, um, he just works with his hands, he has this very menial blue-collar job as a tent maker sometimes. They even say later in the letter that he didn't speak that well. You guys remember that about Paul? He wasn't a good oral, oral uh, communicator. He wasn't an orator. He wrote well. They actually talk about his letters being weighty. But then when he's there in person with his words, they're like, unimpressed. You can't speak that well. You're not as polished as these other Christians are when they speak. They're better speakers than you. They were just ashamed of Paul's weaknesses and perceived ungiftedness. And so Paul is saying what he's going to say throughout this whole letter in many and beautiful, complimentary, various ways. But he starts to say here, guys, what is the gospel to you again? What's the gospel? Is it about our ability or God's? Is it about our inherent righteousness or Christ's come down from heaven and given to us? If I was strong, the foundation of grace that's literally holding you up out of hell right now 
would start to crumble in your minds and crumble in your hearts. It would affect you. He, I, he even says, it's to your advantage then that I suffer. It's advantageous to you that you see me as a weak leader. It's advantageous to you that I'm not gifted in every way, that I have bad days, that I'm beaten, that I'm persecuted, that I'm whipped, that I'm almost stoned to death, that I'm shipwrecked, that I can't speak that well in person, that I don't have all the the gifts, that I don't have a cape on, I don't wear a mask, I can't fly. It's advantageous to you because of what that says about it's grace, not works. God, everything, us, nothing. That's what that communicates. And Paul's saying, I've been preaching this to you. You became Christians based off that message. Why do you expect my life to reflect the opposite? Why do you expect your life to reflect the opposite? That's what this book's about in many and various beautiful complementary ways. And so, so one last thing I'll say on this is in Christianity, we don't move from weak to, weak to strong. We move from strong to weak because of grace. We move from um, self-perceived strength to weakness in him. We move from less of ourselves, more of him. We, we move from, I thought it was all about me being a good person to me considering that idea refuse for the sake of Christ alone on that cross and that alone being what I trust in. And to use Paul's words, rely on. Rely means depend, right? What are you depending on? If Jesus came back right now, what would, be, what would you say? Would you say anything? Would you have a defense? Would you, would you think you'd have a defense? Do you think he comes down with scales and weighs your good and bad on both scales and you hope for the best? What's your expectation? See, what we, what we think about when we think about Jesus' return and the nature of the gospel says everything about where we're at spiritually, right? A lot of times we think we're Christians, but we're not because the whole, the whole thing is misconceived, misperceived. Instead of it being about him, we think it's about us. He's, him as a teacher instead of him being a savior, like we talked about last week. But in Christianity, we don't move from weak to strong, but strong to weak. And grace keeps telling its story in our lives. Things don't always get better in our lives as Christians in a physical sense or an emotional sense or a mental sense because it's still not about us after we're saved but about his saving work in our lives through the gospel and our reliance on him. So as Christians then, we we have to have a nuanced perspective on comfort and suffering. It's not simple. We have to have two buckets. We have to have the comfort bucket where we're acknowledging that God's not a killjoy. He loves giving to us. Uh, the Bible says elsewhere, he's the, the, the giver of all good gifts is him. He, he loves pouring out his love and blessing in the form of things sometimes, to be small shadows of his greater grace. He's the God of all comfort. So wherever there's comfort in the world, there God is. Because it isn't sourced from anywhere else. And yet, the other bucket is to say, God also loves me too much to give me everything I want. He loves me too much. Like like a parent would say that to a kid, right? I love you too much to say yes to all of your requests, you know, because it's going to, what, rot your brain, or it's going to rot your teeth, or it's going to rot something else. But, um, 
that, 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 that's what we say. How much more does God say it who's better than us as parents? He's the ultimate, he's the best parent. He will say no. He will give suffering if it means we will rely on him more for salvation and rely on him more for comfort. He will because he loves you too much to give you something that will not lead you down that path. Do you see what he's saying here? We have to understand this about suffering. It's not the only kind of suffering, the only answer to why there's suffering, but it's major. Do we believe this? What's the gospel? Our hope is in the resurrection, not in earthly comfort. And that explains how we can be deeply suffering, but experiencing deeper comfort from God at the same time. That's where the tensions result. If it's just about physical comfort, you can't resolve the tension. But if it isn't, you can. We can be suffering. We can be driven to the hope of the resurrection of the body. And we can have comfort in that at the exact same time. All right. Third and final facet to the diamond here is the the voice of Jesus from this passage. All right. So we just got done talking about how it's not about us. And that's true when it comes to salvation but it's also true when it comes to reading the Bible. Even in New Testament letters like this, they're for us, but not as much about us as we sometimes think, especially when we look at the words of Paul contextually. So if you're here last week, I talked about how Timothy's status as brother is meant to resemble Jesus' brother-like status or relationship with us by grace. Uh, So in the same way, though, Paul's words are many times Christ's words to us because God wrote this letter, not just Paul. Meaning, then, is not wrapped around Paul's intentionality, but God's. So both are important questions to ask when we approach the Bible, but we have to go to the deeper spiritual meaning if we're to truly understand what these letters mean and why they were written. Especially when we look at here Paul, when Paul says that he isn't just suffering, but he's suffering for those he's leading. He's suffering for the Corinthians, just like Jesus suffers for us. It's kind of this benchmark idea of Paul being the apostle of Christ, the picture of Christ in the letters uh, Timothy, Timothy as well. Okay, but here's what I mean. When Paul says, in this letter, if, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort. The deeper and fuller meaning behind those words is Christ himself saying to us, not if, but when I was afflicted, it was for your comfort and salvation. I wanted to be afflicted for your salvation. I wanted to take the bullet. I wanted to suffer so you wouldn't have to. And when I was raised up or comforted, that was for the sake of your future comfort-like resurrection as well. Even more in verses 8 and 9, when Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. When Paul says that, we know that Jesus too wants us to not be unaware of his afflictions that he experienced for us at Golgotha on the cross. Isn't this why Jesus' scars remain even in his physical body? 
He wants us to remember that he was utterly burdened beyond his physical strength on the cross, that he despaired of life itself on the cross, that the Son of God despaired of life for us, that he was afflicted beyond measure for you and me. And he doesn't want us to be ignorant or unaware of it. See, Paul has his reasons, but they're very particular and very specific and hard to know exactly what he's even meaning. It's not important to know what Paul means. It's important to know the voice of our shepherd call out to us. Like John 10 says, if you're a Christian, you know the voice of your shepherd, right, when you hear it. Well, when you read stuff like this, you should say, that sounds a lot like my shepherd. His voice is in those words. The deeper meaning here is not what Paul means. It's what God meant through Paul to us. Christ was crucified. Christ experienced hell on that cross. He, he received not just the sentence of death, but death itself so that we might be saved. And he wants us to know his sufferings because to know about them and to trust in them, to rely on them, is to be saved. Or another way to word it would be Jesus saying, I have become uncomfortable for you on the cross. I've exchanged my heavenly comfort for earthly discomfort so you earthly sinners might share in heavenly glory. That's the great exchange. That, that is a way to reword 2 Corinthians in a Christocentric, a Christ-centered way to hear his voice call out to us and not just to understand the history behind Paul's punctilier blip-on-the-radar suffering in Asia Minor. That's important because of how it points to Jesus' sufferings. His suffering for his churches is important because of how it points to Jesus' sufferings for the greater capital C Church Global and through all history, including Hiawatha Church, year 2020, September 27th, right now in this very room. Jesus died for us. He loves you guys. And he wants you to see his scars so you won't forget. Whether it's suffering or comfort, the goal to both is to see a reflection of his gospel or to be driven on the rock of ages by the waves of suffering. But the goal on both sides of it is him. And that's why, that's why one of the many important reasons to understand this passage is because it lets us into the heart of God and what he wants for us. Have you guys ever wondered what God wants like from you in your life? Like you ever asked a version of that question? It's a good question. It's not a bad question. But the reason why it's so important to see and hear the words of Christ spiritually call out through Paul here is because we get a glimpse into what his will is for our life. And here, what his will is, is he wants us to be aware of his sufferings for us. Do you see how much grace there is in that? How much more fatherly mercy? How much more peace and assurance for us as sinners than thinking God wants me today to change the world or wants you today to be perfect or wants you to sell all your belongings and move somewhere, just give it all away. That's not, that's not what this says. What does this say? He wants you to see his scars. Why didn't they go away after he rose from the dead? Why didn't all the scars go away? If his crucifixion was a blip on the radar, like an unfortunate root in the path that he tripped over, but oh, that wasn't why he really came, why, do they, why are they still there? 
Why will he always be called the Lamb of God, the crucified Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, even into, into the future, into eternity? Luke 24, 39, Jesus is after his resurrection. Look at these scars in my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me. Or to, to reword this with 2 Corinthians language, Jesus says to us, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction I experienced at Golgotha. I don't want you to be unaware of that. I want you to know it. I want you to know me. I want you to know my sufferings. I want you to know my resurrection. I want you to know how much I spent. I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to see me as the fountain of life, the fountain of mercies. And so this passage then for us has like a human and divine side to it. We talk about this a lot here. On the human side, a passage like this speaks about things like helping others in prayer, empathy towards others who suffer, how God-given suffering can drive the gospel deeper into our hearts, and how good leadership in the church is when a leader suffers for those he or she leads. We didn't speak about some of these things in detail today, but they're pretty straightforward. But on on the divine side, it says, you don't have to have experienced deliverance from a, quote, deadly peril. You don't have to see your precise experiences in Paul in order to get meaning from a passage like this. It's not about you because Jesus fulfills it for you. Jesus is the answer to the questions this passage raises. His discomfort on the cross is how God shows off his comfort to us at the highest level. So he calls out to us here in this letter. Remember, he writes to us in his own blood. Remember that. He writes, I love you. He writes, grace and peace. He writes, Father of mercies. He writes, God of all comfort. What he really writes is, look at my scars. Hear my voice call out through Paul's contextual experiences. I am in him in that moment. Is he not? Christ is in him in that moment. So of course they're from him. Of course these are Jesus' words. He calls out to us here, though, to inviting us to see and savor his wounds, to put our fingers in his wounds like Thomas did, in his hands, in his side, and to believe and, and to cast all our cares upon him, to think less of ourselves. And, and as this passage says, to set our hope on him. Here's your hope. Like, where are you putting it, right? Like, is, is it going back in here? Where are you putting your hope? That's a great question for a Christian or a non-Christian. Wherever you're at, where is your hope? What are you hoping in? What do you have hope based off of? What this is saying is reliance and dependence is a big part of the equation. Do not set your hope on the kings of earth. Do not set your hope on your moral deeds. Do not set your hope on yourself in any way whatsoever or anything in between those things but instead on the crucified and risen Christ who was afflicted and made uncomfortable for us for the sake of our spiritual comfort. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. This letter really begins this way, uh, last week too, but um, it, it begins this way with this naming of you as the father of mercies and the God of not some comfort, but every single ounce of comfort that exists in the universe is somehow, it's Genesis is with you. It's, it's, it, it begins 
and ends with you, whether it's reflective of the gospel or actual to the gospel. Uh, You're the one. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to run, not walk to you, not to, because of what the gospel is, not to wait, not to clean ourselves up, not to wait until we just don't do that one sin for a couple of weeks so we feel better about ourselves, not to do any of that, but to, to today, daily, run to you with empty, messy hands, saying, God, forgive me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Justify me. Uh, make me a son, a daughter of the king. Cleanse me. Thank you that you've been afflicted for me and help us to put our fingers into the scars of Christ with, with our faith and to set our hope on them and, and them alone. Uh, mature your church, God. Make us all reliant more on you and less on ourselves today. In Christ's name, amen.